Welcome to all of you who have joined us for the, this PIM webinar today. Um, uh, my name is Frank Place. I'm the director of the CGIR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets. And today, uh, we're going to hear uh, a very interesting uh, topic, uh, the title being, Do Medium and Large-Scale Farms Generate Income Spillovers for Rural Households? The Case of Tanzania. This work is undertaken by PIM as part of our research flagship two, Economy-Wide Factors Affecting Agricultural Growth and Rural Transformation. We have two people joining us to, uh, uh, today for this seminar. One is Jordan Chamberlain, who will be presenting this, the, the, the webinar, and he's joined by a, co a colleague, Tom Jane. So I'll introduce both of them uh, right now. So Jordan Chamberlain is currently a spatial economist at the International Maize and Weed Improvement Center, or otherwise known as CIMIT. He's based in Nairobi, Kenya now. However, today he's, he's uh, visiting East Lansing, uh, Michigan at Michigan State University. Uh, he was formerly an assistant professor of, at, of international development and a member of Michigan State's Department of Agricultural Food and Resource Economists Food Security Group. He joined that faculty in May 2013 and was on a long-term assignment in Lusaka, Zambia with the Indaba Agricultural Policy Research Institute. Um, he conduct, there he conducted collaborative research and training on microeconomic analysis of smallholder livelihoods in Zambia and elsewhere in Sub-Saharan Africa. Previously to that, he was actually a scientist also at, uh, with uh, my host institute, the International Food Policy Research Institute, where he was based in Ethiopia. And previously, he, he was uh, in the Peace Corps in Paraguay. So he's uh, moved around quite a bit in his career. Um, with Jordan at, at East Lansing is, is Tom Jane, who is the University Foundation Professor of Agricultural Food and Resource Economics at Michigan State University and co-director of the Alliance for, Afri for African Partnership, which is a university-wide initiative to promote long-term collaboration in Africa. Um, he is also a co-flagship leader of the flagship two, which I, I formerly mentioned uh, within PIM. Uh, before handing over to Jordan, let me explain how we work uh, these seminars and webinars, that is. So our speaker will begin sh very shortly with a presentation that you will see on your screens. The presentation will last for about 30 minutes. During the presentation, we invite the listeners to send in questions via the chat and or window question, win question windows on the right side of your screens. Um, you'll see those. We collate the questions and group any that are similar in content and then we pose them, uh, you know, two or three at a time to the, sometimes one at a time to the speakers, uh, and they will they will respond. We are, we handle the questions in this way to make the best of our one hour together. Um, we are recording the webinar and we'll make it available on our website shortly after the live event for those who are unable to join or would like a replay. So, with those few remarks, I will hand it over to Jordan. <laughs> Great, thanks very much, Frank. Um, very happy to be here and uh, alongside my colleague and co-author Tom um, <clears throat> to talk about some work that we've been um, working on for a while. Um, so in, in this study, we address the question posed in the title of the presentation, which is do medium and large scale farms generate income spillovers for rural households? And we're asking this question using a case study of Tanzania and uh, I should say before getting into it that while, while many aspects of this study are, are very simple, uh, we do think it's, it's a fresh and, and, and I hope uh, exciting uh, empirical approach to a question that's 
come up in one form or another uh, in the kind of development literature over the past few decades. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, by way of motivation, I guess what first started us thinking about this question was the recognition that while as a kind of stylized fact, we expect that, that ag productivity growth results in poverty reduction. And in many cases, that in fact does take place. But you've also got cases where that's that's not happening. So Zambia is kind of a classic example of, of a country with uh, pretty, pretty pronounced ag productivity growth, um, but with very stagnant levels of rural uh, poverty. So in kind of you know, scratching our heads over that, what, what kind of explains uh, where this relationship varies from the standard case? We wondered whether or not differences in asset inequality were kind of part of that story. And so that really got us focused on, on this question. Uh, this also links with a longstanding view in the development literature that land distribution patterns in particular, so within kind of, you know, this superset um, uh, of, of assets that we might think about inequality. We're thinking in particular about land distributions. And, um, and this idea that land distribution patterns influence how agricultural productivity growth affects economic development. So this idea has a, has a, a long history going back to pioneering work by Bruce Johnston, John Miller, uh, Michael Lipton, Hans Binswanger. Um, the basic idea is, has to do with the role of the multiplier. Um, so in relatively egalitarian land distributions, uh, we would expect uh, that there are larger multiplier effects as the benefits to productivity um, are recycled kind of more intensively in local economies. So kind of another way to, to give an intuitive version of that, uh, taking, taking the other case, if, if land is relatively concentrated under a few larger farms, uh, to the extent that, that productivity increases are taking place in that landscape, most of those benefits are likely to be retained by relatively few members of that landscape, if you like to think of it in, in those terms. Um, now, against these ideas, uh, there's also increasing evidence of fairly rapid changes taking place in the farm size distributions in many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, uh, some of my colleagues here at Michigan State have done some very interesting work kind of documenting the rise of domestic investor farms, uh, uh, many of which are kind of uh, uh, medium scale emergent farmers. And so, so putting all of these things together, we've got a, a ripe uh, case or, or, or a good rationale for, for really wondering what the implications of these changes are. Um, to give you a sense of what some of the changes in farm structure look like in Tanzania over the past few years, what this table uh, does is um, kind of assembles information about uh, the distribution of farms in different farm sizes. So in the table, the, the rows there kind of divided up all the farms in the sample into different categories of farm size. So zero to five hectares, five to 10 hectares, 10 to 20 hectares and above. And then look at how the relative numbers of farms and the land under those farms have been changing across this, um, this, uh, this uh, data set. And so these, this is the first and third wave of the LSMS data from Tanzania. So it's a relatively short period of time. First wave was 2008, 2009. Third wave was 2012, 2013. And kind of summarizing, um, Kind of some of the things to, to observe in this table is that while there's been growth in the absolute number of farms um, 
across this period of time, the distribution of those changes has, has, uh, has been kind of noteworthy in at least one respect. And if we move over to the right, the rightmost uh, set of columns, the total uh, the percentage of total operated land on farms between zero and 100 hectares, so, so in our, our whole sample, what we see is that there's been a migration of land under the very smallest category of farms to the larger categories of farms. So to, to, to make that more explicit, between 2008 and 2012, the percentage of the total operated land in that system um, under the very smallest farms, our, our zero to five hectare category went from 62.4% to 56.3%. So that's a decrease of just over 6%. And there's a corresponding increase in the relative shares, of course, in the other farm size categories. So this net shift of land from smaller farms to larger farms, even as the, the, the total number of farms in all categories is growing is something that we want to pay attention to. Now, 6% may not seem like a very large number, but bear in mind, this is a, a just a four-year period of time that we're observing these changes over. So this is a pretty striking structural change. So given these changes, our main question is, how does land distribution or the inequality in, in access to land condition how economic growth occurs in predominantly agrarian areas? And our focus here is on the per full-time equivalent. So you'll see FTE in a number of these slides, and that stands for full-time equivalent, and it's a way of kind of normalizing labor. So our focus is on uh, per FTE income in both agriculture and non-farm sectors. The hypotheses uh, going into this, you know, our a priori stance is that it could go either way. So if concentration of, of land holdings implies lower multipliers, then we would expect that our localized measures of concentrated land ownership would be associated with lower incomes. On the other hand, if larger farms facilitate access to inputs, to services, to markets, either directly or indirectly, then we might expect that concentrated land ownership would be associated with higher incomes. So this is really what we want to test in this study. So just a, a few acknowledgments uh, of how this question or, or, or similar questions have been addressed in the literature. Uh, Rebellion and Debt's uh, very influential 2002 study showed that the uh, percentage of landless households uh, significantly affected the elasticity of poverty to non-farm output in India. Um, Bolrath's 2007 study used national data to show that the rate of agricultural productivity growth was inversely related to the Gini coefficient of land holdings, again at the national level. Gugardy and Timmer's 1999 study was also a kind of uh, national level study and found that in countries with an initial good distribution of assets, both agricultural and non-agricultural growth benefited the poorest households. But in countries with bad distribution or more concentrated distribution of assets, economic growth was skewed towards wealthier households. So a priori, we've got some um, some evidence kind of supporting this, this stylized story of concentrated asset ownership resulting in lower multiplier effects and kind of being a, a less virtuous landscape, if you like. So in this study, our research approach is as follows. We, first of all, get the best data available on farm size distributions. In this case, we're looking at Tanzania. We then use those data sets to develop alternative measures of land concentration or inequality. And I'll talk about the measures that we 
focus on in this study. And then we examined the degree of correlation across these alternative measures and also across the same measures developed from alternative data sets to see how much variation there is. And finally, we develop and estimate per full-time equivalent income models, where our goal is to assess the influence of localized land concentration on uh, per FTE income across time and space. And we're also paying particular attention to distributional uh, effects or distributional patterns in this relationship. Um, so I'll, sh I'll show what that looks like as we get into it. So a few words about the data we're using. Um, there, there are two data sets that we're kind of fusing here, uh, two nationally representative data sets from Tanzania. First is the National Panel uh, Survey. Uh, this is the LSMS data. We're using the first three waves. And in our balance sample, we've got a little over 2,000 households that have all the, the variables we need and, and kind of show up in our data set. And alongside the, the National Panel Survey, we've got the Agricultural Sample Census Survey from 2009, which is a very large sample. So there's almost 53,000 uh, small and medium uh, uh, farms that show up in this sample, as well as a complete census of all the large commercial farms in the country at the time. So arguably, the, um, while, while we're using the NPS to, to get a, um, to kind of see what's going on on the individual farms, uh, discern individuals' labor allocation between farm and non-farm activities, we're using that data set to construct our, our outcome variables of interest in most of the right-hand side elements as well. The ASC is where we're getting our, our arguably better um, picture about what land, localized land concentration is looking like in the different parts of the country uh, where our sample is. Now, um, so I'll be referring to these two different data sets through uh, as, as NPS and ASC, as you'll see there on the screen. Um, so the LSMS data, uh, we're calling the, the NPS, for, you know, using its, its local name there, and then the ASC is the Agricultural Sample Census Survey. So there's a lot going on in this slide, but I'm just going to try to, to hit the, the main points and, and hopefully it'll make sense to everyone. So, so we start off with the farm level production function where our outcome of interest, uh, Y, is gross income per full-time equivalent uh, for farmer I and community J at time T. And that's a function of uh, household level characteristics represented in the vector X there. Um, uh, as well as local geographical context characteristics. So that's the vector C. Uh, we've also got G in there as a measure of access to local public and private capital stocks in community J. And I'll say more about that in just a second. And then finally, epsilon is uh, our error term. So our, our conjecture here is that the kind of the magnitude of multiplier effects is conditioned by kind of the, the, the stock of, of um, and the distribution of assets, in particular land. So unobservable access to local public and private capital stocks is conditioned by the observable local distribution of land control. So G there for community J at time T is a function of I, which is our measure of farmland distribution in the same community at that time, as well as other factors which may also influence that outcome. Um, we then substitute our expanded version of G into the production function to get an estimable version of that. 
And again, we're using the ASC to define this key right-hand side element, um, our, our measure of, of localized land concentration. We look at a number of different uh, ways of measuring this, um, in fact, much more than, than what we'll talk about here today. In the paper, just to keep things manageable, we focus on, uh, on uh, five different measures. So the Gini coefficient skewness, or the, uh, the third moment of the distribution, uh, the coefficient of variation in farm size, as well as the percentage of land uh, under farms of five to 10 hectares, so these kind of medium scale guys, and then the percentage of land under farms of 10 or more hectares. So all that's coming from the ASC. All the other elements of our, of our uh, data set are coming from the National Panel Survey. Again, we've got three waves. Um, we use a number of geographical controls, uh, access to markets, uh, rainfall, et cetera. And um, because we've got panel data, we're able to address some of the endogeneity concerns here. So I don't have a separate slide on that, but we can um, just kind of enumerate what the main concerns are. And then if, if conversation takes us in that direction, we can go into more detail. But the main concern here is that we may be facing uh, um, some endogeneity concerns having to do with omitted variable bias. So if there are things that aren't, that we're not controlling for that are driving kind of localized um, land um, concentration outcomes or you know, the, the, the outcome of, of farm holdings within a local area, which are also um, influencing the outcomes of interest in our models. So in uh, per FTE income measurements, then that's a problem for us. So in terms of the time uh, invariant factors, uh, be because we've got uh, panel data, we're able to use panel estimators. And the panel estimator that we focus on in this paper is, uh, is what Wooldridge has called the correlated random effects model. This is basically the Munlach-Chamberlain device. And, and the basic idea there is that by including the time averages of all the time varying components of our model, we're able to um, control for the time invariant unobserved heterogeneity that may be causing us a problem had we not controlled for that. In addition, we may also be concerned about time varying factors uh, that may be affecting our variable of interest and our outcomes of interest. Um, to address that, we um, have dummies for agroecological zones, which were interacting with year dummies for the, the three panel waves. And so that's kind of soaking up a lot of that variation. We're also including um, kind of um, uh, seasonal measures of rainfall, uh, which are varying year on year. So we've got some controls in there as well. So we think we're on pretty good ground here, but welcome to be challenged on that. Um, so the outcomes of interest, I think we've already covered this, but in terms of dependent variables, so again, these are per FTE income uh, outcomes that we're looking at, and we're looking at them in different categories. So we're interested in agricultural income per FTE, non-farm income per FTE, and then as a separate kind of subcategory of the non-farm subgrouping, uh, uh, sub, um, sub if you like, is the agricultural wage income, which um, you would, might think would, would behave uh, quite differently than, than the non-farm wage and, and business component of income. And then finally, the aggregate of all of those are total household income per FTE in that household. Uh, all of our outcomes are measured in real 2010 Tanzanian shillings. Um, let me now skip to 
kind of our right-hand side variable of interest and just kind of walk you through how we're kind of thinking about this. So to start off with, we said, well, so, so what would, if you could kind of think about, you know, how land concentration might look like in different stylized landscapes, uh, what would that mean for the way that we measure it, right? Um, so what these uh, different uh, figures are showing are, are some, some um, synthetic landscapes, if you like. Uh, so we've just kind of populated these landscapes with farms of, of different sizes and different distributions of those sizes and then calculated uh, alternative measures of concentration. So the Gini coefficient, the skewness, coefficient of variation, et cetera, et cetera. And then asked how they would change as we kind of look through uh, look across these different landscapes that are kind of telling us something that makes intuitive sense about what we would expect to see as we think about landscapes that are increasingly dominated by larger farms. And one of the things that we found in going through this exercise is that while all of these different measures are kind of moving together with one another, they don't move uh, identically. In other words, the, 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 the different um, concentration measures um, it, it, it matters what you choose because they're not, um, they're, not, they're not all kind of tracking equally across these different changes in, in landscape as we move from relatively unimodal to more concentrated uh, distributions of land, of land holdings. Um, another way to see that is by examining the correlation coefficients um, of these different measures um, at the national level. And here, again, what we see is that while most of these alternative ways of measuring land concentration are highly correlated with one another, they're not perfectly correlated with one another. And so um, from the get-go, we're, we're interested in kind of um, making sure that we take a number of different alternative measures in our empirical assessment of what's going on, because we've got some indications right up front that how you measure this will have some influence on the analytical conclusions that you draw about that relationship. So jumping now to some of the key estimation results, um, we're looking here again at the impacts of farm structure and per capita income. So all I'm showing here uh, are the just the coefficient estimates of interest. So you know, bear in mind that there's there's a very big kind of set of regression results behind all of this, and and you're welcome to to peruse those in the paper, which I think is online. If it's not, we can send that out to everyone, um, and it's it's also online at Michigan State as a as a working paper. But just to orientate you to what's going on on this slide, so the upper panel there, um, so these are, this is showing kind of the coefficients of interest from, uh, from models where the dependent variable is the household farm per FTE gross income. And the six different model specifications there differ only in the measure of land concentration that we're using, right? And so all the other elements of the model which are not being shown are the same. And again, you can you can look at those or we can talk about what they are. But the basic story coming through here, and and to be honest, we were a bit surprised by this because it went against our, our a priori assumptions, is that most measures of land concentration are, are statistically significant and are positive. Uh, and we'll talk about how to interpret those, those numbers uh, in, in a second. But basically, we're seeing uh, evidence of positive spillover effects or positive multiplier effects. Um, 
in, in all of these different measures of land concentration. And again, uh, in the top panel, we're looking at farm per FTE gross income. So that's true for the Gini coefficient. That's true for our measure of skewness, uh, the coefficient of variation, the share of land under these medium scale farms between five and 10 hectares. Now, if, if the first kind of stylized finding is that land concentration seems to be a virtuous um, kind of landscape, you know, there seems to be some positive impacts of having larger farms in your landscape. The second stylized finding uh, that's, that's very robust across all of the different uh, alternative ways of looking at this that we've taken is that those positive benefits tend to peter out as the size of the farms that we're focusing on uh, gets larger. So in other words, if you look at the bottom row of that first panel, the coefficient estimates for the share of land under farms of 10 hectares or more is no longer statistically significant or no longer distinguishable from zero. And so again, the, the stylized or, or intuitive understanding of what's going on is that diversity of farm sizes is good, but only up to a point that, that as farms get very large, that the positive benefits of having those farms in the landscape on the incomes felt by the smaller farm components of that landscape begin to dwindle, okay? So uh, we see a very similar story as we look at our other dependent variables of interest. So the bottom panel here is looking at household total per FTE gross income. And again, across most of these measures of land concentration, we see a positive and statistically significant coefficient estimate. So, so land concentration seems to be doing good things in terms of uh, conditioning total per FTE gross income outcomes on uh, households in that landscape. But again, th that's only true up to a point. Once you start to examine the share of land held under farms above 10 hectares, those benefits are no longer apparent. Now, I just, th the point of this slide is to kind of signal that there's nothing magical about that 10 hectare threshold that we're using to distinguish between medium and larger scale farms. We experimented with a number of different categorizations uh, to see if there was a kind of natural breaking point. And I, I guess the, the short answer is that there's no, you know, there, there is no natural breaking point, but we do see very clear evidence, very robust evidence that the positive impacts of concentration are localized in these medium scale farms. So whether we measure that as five to 10 hectares or five to 20 hectares, or even five to 50 hectares, we see benefits there. But once we take that, that upper tail of the distribution, concentration under those much larger farms is, um, is no longer uh, discernibly positive in terms of its impact on, uh, on uh, per FTE income outcomes. So what the, what that graph on the left is showing are the coefficient estimates. So the, the point estimates as well as the 90th percentile confidence interval around those estimates um, for the different measures of land concentration, uh, which are all summarized in the table on, on the right. So these are the same numbers there. And so column A, if you're looking at the at the graph on the left, this is this is uh, our kind of our baseline results, and so it's the same as, as what we saw in the previous slide. Is that we're seeing a positive impact of concentration of land under that medium uh, scale category, if you like, 
and it's not distinguishable from zero for the larger farms, but as we vary the thresholds or even the number of categories, we're seeing different versions of that same overall story. Um, I can tell you about some other ways we've kind of examined whether or not these results are robust, um, but it, it seems to be a, a fairly consistent story no matter how we kind of um, uh, vary our, our empirical estimation strategy, at least on that particular point. Now, the second question that I mentioned at the outset that we wanted to look at was uh, kind of the distributional side of this story. And so what we've done here is interacted the land concentration measure with wealth terciles defined for all the households in our sample from the NPS. And basically what you can see, uh, again, the table is only showing the coefficient estimates of interest. So it's showing the land concentration and those interaction terms. Um, so the baseline, um, the base category is, uh, is, is defined for the poorest tercile. And then we uh, include interaction terms for the medium and the wealthiest tercile. And the basic story coming through uh, all the different specifications, so all the different measures of land concentration, is that spillover benefits are increasing in wealth of the household. In other words, uh, the larger or the wealthier the household, the more easily it's able to take advantage of the positive spillover um, benefits of being in a landscape with larger farms. In fact, there are zero or negative um, spillover benefits for the poorest tercile. So we see that, for example, in, uh, in the measure of skewness, where the coefficient estimate for the base category is negative and significant, and it's positive uh, for the other two tercile interactions and, and larger uh, for the wealthiest tercile. And so, again, a very consistent story there. So quite a pronounced distributional um, uh, aspect to this relationship. Now, the numbers uh, are a bit hard to interpret, or, or, or rather the, the coefficient estimates themselves are a bit hard to interpret because they're all based on, on measures or indices that are defined in different ways. So one way to kind of boil that down in a more intuitive way is to simulate the impact of changes in land concentration on total income and farm income. And that's what this table is showing. So uh, for total income, what we've done is first um, predicted the average per FTE income uh, for um, using, using our, our estimation results for uh, these different measures of land concentration when they're fixed at the 20 fifth percentile of the distribution across all the districts in Tanzania, and then do the same thing for that the different measures of land concentration fixed at the 75th percentile of the distribution across all the, the districts in the country, and then compare the difference. And so what we see, for example, for the Gini is that the average per FTE income goes from 4,300 to 6,300 as you um, move from the 25th percentile of concentration up to the 75th percentile of concentration. So that's a difference of 2,000, sorry, 2 million, because I'm normalizing by 1,000 here. So that's a difference of 2 million Tanzanian shillings. Um, or when you render that as the difference, uh, or if you translate that difference into the percentage of the average per FTE income, so that's 112% gain in your average per FTE income levels as you move from 
the 25th percentile of concentration is, is measured by the genie to the 75th percentile. So that, that's a bit wordy. I, I hope that the, the main idea comes through is that as you, as we kind of simulate the impacts on per FTE income, as we move from relatively low levels of concentration to relatively high levels of con concentration, we see that the predicted changes in per FTE income are, are quite high. And we see a very similar story, although uh, smaller in magnitude, uh, but similar in its patterns, when we look at farm income as the outcome of interest. And so we're doing the same exercise here as we're kind of modeling what the, the farm per FTE income levels would be at the 25th and the 75th percentiles of the distribution, and then um, looking at what, what the predicted changes in those outcomes are. So to summarize the main results of the paper, there, there's quite a bit more there, um, but for reasons of time, we'll leave it at that. Um, so let me summarize. Uh, first of all, we found that farmland concentration positively is positively associated with rural household incomes. This is true for farm, agricultural wage, and non-farm income sources. Um, that the positive impacts in particular from the share of land in the district under farms of five to 10 hectares. Um, so these kind of medium scale uh, farms appear to be driving that overall relationship, but benefits are smaller and less statistically significant in districts with a relatively high share of farmland under farms of 10 or more hectares inside, inside. So, so again, that these, these benefits of land concentration appear to have limits. Um, a fourth finding is that the poor rural households in our sample, the poorest rural households in our sample are those least able to capture the positive spillovers. Um, the greatest income benefits accrue to households in the upper two thirds of the wealth distribution. Now, of course, this includes the majority of rural households by definition, but, um, but it's a strong distributional story, so worth paying attention to. Now, one thing that we haven't been able to do in this study, but we think would be really worthwhile to, um, to invest in going further with is to better understand the underlying mechanisms for these relationships. Um, so again, our study is not able to kind of uncover what those uh, relationships are because we don't observe them directly, but we do have some indirect evidence about what some of those things might be. So in a recent paper by my colleagues Nick Sitko and Tom here, looking at the emergence of medium-scale farmers in Zambia, um, they found that medium-scale farmers, again, in, this, uh, in the, the previous slides, those would be the, the farms in the five to 10 hectare range. These often come from the same social or ethnic backgrounds as their neighboring small-scale farmers. Um, there's more extensive social interactions with the local community. Um, other channels that may be important um, may have to do with kind of um, uh, direct uh, hiring in of, of ganji or, or, or other kind of agricultural labor in local environments. Um, and it may have to do with using similar input and output channels. So, so the presence of larger farms may kind of attract and strengthen um, uh, uh, upstream and downstream value chains that are also a benefit to surrounding smallholder farmers. The implications of this research um, is, well, first and foremost, that farmland distribution matters for the shape of rural growth. Um, there have been rapid changes taking place in farm structure in the region, and land policies 
are not articulated with ag growth strategies. So this kind of disarticulation is probably something that, that should be examined more closely. At the same time, we need more empirical work. So our study, while it's very compelling in some ways, it's, it's just the, it's the tip of the iceberg uh, to a certain extent. We'd like to replicate our results in other contexts to understand how generalizable this story is. And again, uh, as we just mentioned in the previous slide, we need some more work to better understand the mechanisms of these positive spillovers. So this has implications for survey design. Uh, standard sampling frames for rural household surveys are underrepresentative of the largest farms and don't allow for kind of um, uh, persuasive calculation of local land concentration measures. So, um, so revisiting how we, how we build our sampling frames could really shed some more light on these relationships. So that's all I put together in the main slide, um, but happy to take questions and we can drill down on any, uh, any particular aspect that, that our listeners would like to talk about. Thanks very much. Great. Thank you very much, Jordan, and to Tom uh, for the very interesting presentation and for the uh, interesting study that you've done. I totally agree that this, this is a very important issue and, uh, and one that needs a, a better uh, empirical foundation in other contexts. I think just for the listeners, you know, there's previous work, I think, by Tom, Jane, and, and Jordan as well, who, who have been documenting this uh, increase in uh, the uh, medium-scale Farmers, uh, farms that are uh, coming, uh, that are opening up in many countries, not just Tanzania, and often from the urban, urban-based, uh, uh, wealthier households that are, are purchasing and, and land in the rural areas. So it's not just particular to Tanzania. So it's great to uh, have this presentation. Let me start off with just a couple uh, questions I had. Um, was uh, just when we're trying to understand why why this phenomenon is happening, and, and maybe there could be nuances within even within Tanzania, I was wondering if you had um, some additional data to to see how a couple of other variables might have affected the relationship. One would be the say the length of time that these larger farmers were were occupying. I don't know if that your ACS uh, data set has that, or if you could piece that together. I mean, one might surmise that you know the spillovers could grow over time when 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 the farms are more mature say the second one was uh related to crop type that was chosen i mean are these do, you, do we know more, more about these large medium scale the larger scale farmers are they um uh growing more high value crops for example or are they growing the same kinds of crops uh, that the smallholders are growing and that might have implications for whether there's more wage demand or whether there's expansion of these input markets uh, for crops that are similar. And then lastly, I was wondering about um, whether the about productivity levels of these larger farms. Is it Could it be the case that the very largest ones are actually not even cropping most of their land, whereas the, 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 the say the medium scale farmers tend to crop all their land and generating high productivity? So just those, I wanted to see if you uh, had any reflections on those. So, uh, great questions, Frank. I mean, so to be honest, we, we er, you know, in early iterations of this work, we did uh, look a, a bit at crop type um, and, you know, tried to keep this, that, that's kind of dropped out of, of the, the mix just to try to tell a focused story, but it's probably worth going back to. Um, I'm not sure if the ASC 
contains information about how long farms have been around, but that's that's another great point as well. I think both of those things we should look at. Um, in terms of productivity levels of, of larger farms, um, so we haven't looked at that with the ASC data. We could do that. We have looked at kind of uh, chain levels and changes of productivity uh, by size of farm in the in the NPS in the LSMS data. And it's a noisy picture. I'm, I'm not sure that, that there's um, a, a clean way to summarize that. A lot of the larger farms are more productive, but I think you're right that, that a, large, a lot of those larger ones are also sitting idle or, or they're, they're using less of their land. Um, I think more work needs to be done to kind of disentangle what farms are, are doing what. Um, Tom, you've, you've done a lot more work on this. Perhaps you'd like to jump in. Hey, everybody. Um, Frank, uh, thanks for those questions. The only part I'd like to add on is that uh, we, we did look at uh, crop types in um, different work uh, apart from this one. So I can say that the medium scale farms are not really doing things that are very different in terms of crop composition and small scale, uh, perhaps surprisingly. So because they're bigger farms, they tend to do row crops more rather than sort of uh, you know intense intercropping. Mm -hmm. So we see a lot of land in medium scale under maize and soybean uh, rotations, rice uh, in areas where rice is um, applicable. And then in some areas, uh, we found a lot of tree production, um, uh, logging, um, trees for um, for construction materials. So I was kind of surprised to find that. But in general, uh, the crop types are the basic row crops. Okay, good. Uh, question came in. Just to, wanted to you you to reflect more deeply about this result about uh, the um, in terms of the most of the spillover effects going into the medium and the wealthiest terciles and not to the poorest households. Um, do you, can you explain more about why you see no, no more, no spillovers or very few to the poorest or even sometimes negative, I guess? <laughs> yeah, that's a, okay. This is Tom again. Um, most of you have probably um, heard of Thomas Piketty and this book that was very, um, you know, I think it was on the New York Times bestseller list a few years ago. Um, it's called Capital. Uh, and uh, Piketty's thesis was that wealth inequality has all sorts of very um, uh, indirect, well, direct effects on in patterns of investment and patterns of consumption, and all of that ultimately affects uh, incomes. And uh, his you know, thesis was that uh, the more concentrated the um, distribution of wealth became, uh, it was sort of, you know, concentrated in ways that made the poor less able to access uh, those, you know, the sources of income. So, you know, think about Guatemala. Uh, you have these huge latifundia farms um, that are, you know, going like gangbusters. And meanwhile, you've got the majority of the rural population um, uh, landless and, um, you know, um, unable to really benefit from the growth that's occurring on these bigger farms. Um, so, you know, you, you can hark back to those kind of narratives to get a good kind of understanding of why um, uh, when there's wealth, when there's money circulating in the rural economies that's being um, spent by the 
bigger farms and medium to bigger farms, um, that those those will tend to um, raise the demand for businesses, local rural non-farm businesses, that um, the you know wealthier segments of the rural um, population are able to benefit from. So. Uh, so I think that that's kind of the, the reason why we're seeing what we're seeing. But let me emphasize one more time that um, that the, the effects were positive uh, for maybe two thirds of the rural households. Right. Uh, it was really just the bottom third where we saw. And I mean, that's an important fact that the bottom third weren't really cashing in on the um, on the on the kind of on the benefits of. Um, you know, these bigger farms being around. But the fact that two thirds of the rural households were benefiting from this in some multiplier way, um, I, you know, that kind of surprised us. Yeah. And when we looked at what's happening in areas where these medium scale farms are, are um, concentrated, uh, they're pulling in uh, input retailers to go, you know, to invest in the area. Uh, there we've, we saw um, a, a rise in tractor rental markets uh, coming in. Um, uh-huh. We saw large-scale traders investing in these areas, and when when they invest in these areas, it you know benefits not just the medium-scale farms but all the farms uh, around them. Their market access conditions improved. Right. So these are the kind of um, investment patterns that we think are okay. kind of uh, happening in areas where medium scale farms are are, are dominant and um, and so most of the rural households seem to be benefiting from those kind of things uh, even though the as you say the poor are the least likely ones to be benefiting great anything to add to that jordan or well, no, I mean, I fully agree. I, I think this is where if, if we're able to get some some better empirical insights into what those mechanisms actually are, we'd, we'd start to 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 disentangle that a bit. I mean, if 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 all the kind of positive spillover benefits were confined to kind of, you know, to hiring in labor, then you would expect that that the poorest households would be right. kind of the, the benefiting, you know, relatively more than the wealthier households. But because we see the opposite, that kind of suggests that it's it's triggering these changes in in uh, supply chains and and all these other services. That that that's really kind of what's going on. But again, we need more data um, to to really verify that that's the case. Great. Uh, so we had a, so a question that came in. Just, uh, a quick question about your agroecological zone dummies. They they were just wondering what was the source of these dummies. Are they um, how are they reflective of rainy seat rains or or other kinds of variables or where did you draw them from? And is there um, and also was there information on both long rains and short rainy seasons in the LSMS survey? Okay, so so the agroecological dummies that we use, to be honest, I, I can't recall the zone. There's a few standard zonations though, okay. and so so that should be in the paper. Um, so the, the key constraint here was that we couldn't use very localized uh, zonations because we're already kind of bringing in our key variables of interest at the district level. And we also did a parallel set of, of regressions using land concentration measured at the regional level. So we needed to get something that was, um, you know, another set of controls that were, 
you know, fairly coarse and, and didn't map directly onto those admin boundaries. And so the agroecological uh, dummies that we used, um, I think there are, are, no, more than that. I think it was uh, seven or eight different zones. Um, again, if th that should be clear in the paper. There could be other ways to do that. Um, <clears throat> we've also got a control in there for a um, for whether or not this was a bimodal or a unimodal uh, rainfall area. So so that's that's controlled for. And then we've got rainfall itself as as a control there. Okay. Good. Another uh, a specific question came in. I think when Tom was reflecting about what the medium scale farmers were were producing, a question, and you mentioned the trees. So a question came in about wanting to know if there, if you had any more in, information on that, uh, whether those were eucalyptus plantations or similar types of woodlots. Is that what you were finding? Yeah, um, uh, for tim, tim, for the timber industry um, and construction industry in town. So because of a rapid rise in um, cities, uh, there's um, massive demand for construction materials and when we interviewed some of these farmers to understand why they were growing these uh, yeah, eucalyptus trees uh, and other kind of sources of um, wood for construction, uh, they, they cited uh, demand for uh, urban housing uh, as being among the, the top sources of demand for that. Okay, let me come back to the results now. So these, these are very inter interesting results from Tanzania. Would, is there anything particular about Tanzania where you where these results were obtained that you might expect uh, different kinds of outcomes in other countries where we have this similar rise of medium scale farms or how would you how what would your pr predictions be if you were to replicate this study in some other countries? That's a good question. I mean, I'll, I'll start and then pass it over to Tom. Um, yeah, I mean, I think so, so. First of all, I think that that the nature of kind of large farm investments is probably strongly place dependent, and it's going to depend on kind of the um, the legal environment that's um, or the uh, kind of institutional setup that has allowed that kind of investment to take place. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if if some areas have a much more kind of speculative orientation to large farm investment than others. In terms of specific predictions, um, gosh, no, nothing really comes to mind right now. Um, I think that's a great question, and um, we, I have a prior about this. I think that we're um, in areas where medium scale farms are rising by acquiring new farmland that's not involving displacing mm -hmm. um, existing small-scale farmers. In areas like that, I would suspect that th this is more like the Tanzanian model, um, that the, the, the benefits could be positive for everybody. But where land is being acquired by medium-scale farms that it's in, involving displacement or even like expropriation, uh, then um, I'm sure that the effects are going to be much more negative. Uh, and so places where um, displacement has been uh, recorded in, in the work that we've done are places like Malawi. Um, there has been these, some of the medium scale farms that we interviewed, I think 30% of, of uh, those medium scale farms acknowledged that they had acquired land that was pre previously being 
um, used by other, you know, small scale farmers. Uh, so, so, you know, Rwanda might be a case like that too, wherever it's very densely populated to begin with. But in places like Tanzania, Zambia, maybe northern Mozambique, et cetera, et cetera, where there may not be major displacement or any displacement, just expansion of medium scale farms uh, from, um, you know, formerly uncultivated land, then I think that our hypothesis would be that the effects could be much more positive. Mm -hmm. oh, good. So that leads me to another question then. So in addition to studying the spillover effect, I think you've also looked at other types of effects of the, the, the rise of the medium and large scale farms, perhaps on supply of foods to the urban uh, cities and towns, um, maybe on the environment, um, on um, unemployment or other things. I don't know if you wanted to reflect that. So how does how does this particular study add to our knowledge base about the, the overall effects of the medium and large scale farms in Tanzania? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, both Jordan and I are trying to give the microphone to each other. Uh, <laughs> We, we yeah. I, I think that that's a great question, and uh, we could speculate a little bit more on the things that we've already said, but uh, I think the bottom line is that this is wide open um, and 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 kind of begging for more empirical analysis to be done on it. Right. Uh, Jordan, did you ha have anything to add or? No, I really don't. Uh, on that, I mean, yeah, it's a great question. I, yeah. I think we need to find ways to, to look at it empirically. Okay. Maybe one, uh, those are my higher level ones. Maybe coming back, uh, since we have a few more minutes, um, you, you know, you talked about uh, these these different land concentration measures. Is there, and, and, and obviously they, give, they generate slightly different results, although it was, it was good, good that they were pretty consistent in what they were telling us. But in terms of the magnitudes, I guess they were different. Um, is, I mean, is there any, uh, what's your advice to other people looking at this area? Are there certain measures that are more useful or informative than others? Or is, is, it, is it the case that we really need to look at all of the different ones and then try to figure out what they are collectively telling us? <clears throat> I mean, that's that's a great question. I think, you know, it, I, I kind of have two answers. The, that are are somewhat antagonistic to one another. I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, I think that that um, I mean, it's it's hard to pick winners here, right? So so given the very the variation in kind of the analytical results, or, or given the sensitivity of your your conclusions to the measures you choose, I, I think the 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 point, the takeaway is that you should be, you know, using as many measures as, as you can and kind of, you know, see if, are they pointing in the same direction. Um, <clears throat> then the other answer is that when we kind of compare our, our generic measures of concentration, so things like the Gini or the coefficient of variation, with these more structural measures, which are, are looking at concentration under farms of different sizes, that's where we start to get more insights into, into what's going on. So, so paying more attention and, and, you know, by extension, so some of the suggestions that you made earlier about, about looking at concentration under farms of different types or different, you know, the different farming systems or, or, or different modes of production, uh, that might be interesting and, and would, would go beyond what we've done so far. But, um, 
So, so those two points, I mean, you know, look at different measures um, because it's, it's, they're, they're not interchangeable, but to the extent that you can take a more structural view of, of defining measures, then that's probably the, the way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Frank, the, uh, you know, if we would have stopped by just looking at the Gini coefficient as the variable of interest um, and seeing the strong positive um, coefficients there, we would have concluded, well, the more unequal the distribution of land, the greater the sort of indirect benefits to rural households. And it wasn't until we started to, as Jordan said, uh, to, to look at um, these more structural measures of uh, land distribution. What's the percentage of land in the district under five to 10 hectares on 10 to 20, 20 to 50? That's what um, led to sort of different kinds of insight where we could see what kind of class of farm size was providing the greatest indirect benefits to other households in the area. And it turned out, you know, as Jordan presented, uh, turned out to be, you know, the strongest positive effects were, were not the biggest farms. They were kind of in the middle size, five to 20 perhaps hectares. So, uh, I, you know, I think that that, that latter uh, piece of an analysis um, nuanced a lot what otherwise might have been our conclusion if we only were looking at, you know, measures of inequality like Gini coefficients. I think we would have um, kind of walked away with um, an inadequate understanding of what was really going on. Great. Well, that's a, a testimony to, uh, you know, digging deeper. And that's what I really admire about uh, both of your works that I've read over the years, that you do do that. You really try to investigate and try to find out what the real driving factors are. Um, Thank you. Um, so maybe with that, um, I think we can um, bring this to to a close. I was wondering if you might want, you know, you referred to uh, the background paper before we sign off, perhaps if you could give us uh, verbally the website uh, that or, or, or the journal where they might find your, your paper, that would be very useful. Yeah, so it is under review right now, but we've got a working paper version that's um, available. Gosh, um, <laughs> some if they just Google our names. Yeah, yeah. If if you Google um, MSU Afri A AFRE Jane Chamberlain okay. and concentration, okay, a combination of those that terms. Would, that should work. Yeah, we can add the link to the recording. Yeah, when we we're, yeah we'll add a link to the when we put it up on our website we'll put the link to, under your um, email addresses. Okay. Okay. Great. And and sorry. So so just just one last word. I mean, if anybody does have any other thoughts about how we sure. could go further with this analysis or or have you know even even challenges or criticism, uh, please do reach out because we're we're interested in taking this as far as we can. Great. Well, thank you very much. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks for everybody online and for the questions that you sent in. And um, we look forward to, to interacting with you again in December because we have two more webinars coming up. So stay tuned. Thank you very much.